0: Well, if you're visiting with us tonight, uh, we have a special emphasis for a month. Uh, We have paused our study of the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. We'll pick back up on that probably the second week of, well, maybe the first week of August, I'm not sure, but uh, Revelation chapter 12. But in the meantime, because we're starting up our new children's ministry tonight, uh, Adventure Club, and that's exciting, and we just decided to focus on some topics related to the family. And this week and next week, I'll be addressing the issue of marriage, uh, in particular, looking at marriage from this perspective, talking about marriage in the midst of the storm. Now, to set the stage for that, as you know, Pam and I grew up in uh, Texas, on the Gulf Coast of Texas, and because of that, we experienced several hurricanes along the way, some worse than others. Those of you who have moved here from Florida, understand hurricanes as well. Some of the worst and most famous in Texas included one called Hurricane Carla. That went through in 1961. Pam and I were kids, but I do have memories of it. It was the ninth most intense hurricane to make landfall in the United States. Winds reached 145 miles an hour the damage, in, and this is in 1961, the damage was $326 million. I remember that. For as a kid, it was great, all the trees that went down, because I built forts and all kinds of things, you know, to play in the fallen trees. Pam and I definitely remember a lot more this hurricane, Hurricane Alicia. That was in 1983. We had been married for seven years, and by that time we had purchased a pharmacy, in a small town called Danbury, Texas. Danbury is not far from the Gulf Coast at all, maybe 15 miles. When it was apparent that Hurricane Alicia was coming right over Danbury, we boarded up all the store windows of the pharmacy and left it and headed into Houston, which was about an hour away, uh, to ride it out at her mom's house. Alicia only reached 115 miles per hour only, but it was quite a devastating storm for its size. It caused significant destruction in the greater Houston area, $3 billion in 1983, making it the costliest hurricane at the time. Uh, Due to the noise of the wind all night long and falling limbs and trees, we didn't sleep much at all. We stayed in the den of her mother's house just listening to it. Then a couple of days later, we finally were able to make our way back to the little town of Danbury to see what was left and to deal with the mess. There were a lot of other hurricanes along the way. I like to read books about history and stuff like that at night before I go to bed. And so right now I'm reading an interesting book about what is arguably considered the most famous hurricane in Texas history. It's the Galveston Hurricane, 1900. Galveston, as you probably know, is right on the beach on the Gulf of Mexico. This hurricane was the deadliest natural disaster in United States history. The hurricane brought strong winds, of course, reaching once again 145 miles an hour, but the biggest problem was an incredible storm surge that that flooded the town of Galveston. They were not prepared for that, and there was additional flooding it covered a large portion of East Texas, but the death toll was around 8,000 people drowned and got washed away in that one. Well, we could go on and on discussing hurricanes or tornadoes or cyclones or typhoons or tsunamis or just good thunderstorms with lightning like we have here in North Carolina and so forth. But tonight, we're going to begin thinking through what to do in a different kind of storm. It's the storm or storms that a marriage can go through. If you've been married for any length of time at all, I'm sure you have come through some sort of stormy season, if not more than one. It could be the storm of conflict and struggle in the relationship. This idea of storm includes the ever-present storm of just being caught up in the busy, hectic, time-controlled, pressure cooker called life that we live in. There's just so much to get done, right? So many responsibilities to fulfill, and therefore so much pressure that's taking its toll on us sometimes. You can feel like you're living on the edge as far as time and schedules go. Frequently on time, or just on time, frequently late to events, just because we try to squeeze so much into one day, you see the clock as this cruel taskmaster master that controls you, rules your life. By the way, that's not actually a new challenge. It's not just a new phenomenon in our century. Plautus, a Roman playwright, some 2,000 years ago, moaned about the stress that the sundial caused in people's lives. He wrote this, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours, ours, H-O-U-R-S, confound him who is in this place set up a sundial. Well, the point is that sometimes the pace of life just feels like we are living in a hurricane, a tornado, and so many issues can add to the time pressure we feel, including finances, financial pressure, parenting issues, job issues, ministry responsibilities. These are just the kinds of storms that can come up and ultimately it's all the result of living in a fallen world. If you're married, then perhaps it even seems that your marriage is frequently existing in the midst of some sort of storm. Frankly, that's real life for most of us, married or not, but we're focusing on marriage. So I I thought I would share tonight and next week some selected thoughts on some do's and don'ts, especially for married couples who are riding out the storm. This is not a Bible exposition. Some of the thoughts I'll share are just learn from personal experience, even personal failure. Some from reading, of course. Some from talking to others. Counseling. I trust all the insights and thoughts will be in harmony, though, with biblical principles. No doubt some of the points are more important than others. Some may apply to you more than others, which is usually the case in a topical study like this. Also, many of the points relate to one another. You can, you know, have to work to distinguish maybe the nuance of difference, and that's usually the case for studies like this as well. If you're single and you're wondering if you even need to listen here once you've had your Chick-fil-A sandwich, well, I promise something certainly will apply to your life situation as well. So pay attention. Here's the first one. It's a major one. I'm going to spend more time on this one. I think I have about 10 or 12 altogether. At the most I'll do tonight is two. So the others will come rapid fire. And this first one is a longer one. Number one, it's a do. Do keep expectations reasonable. Do keep expectations reasonable. Again, in the midst of a storm, facing pressures in life, be careful about your expectations about how things ought to go, including your marriage, including your spouse, your children, your job, other people, the government. Believe me, the topic of expectations in life is a huge one for all of us. I'm referring to the expectations you have about life, about one another, about others, and so on. It's a major issue in counseling, perhaps in all counseling situations in one way or another. Why? Because this is what we are all prone to do. We easily and regularly create certain expectations about how life ought to turn out, and when it doesn't, we're left holding an empty bag, you could say, when our expectations don't materialize. Again, this could mean expectations about our jobs, our career, our house, our church, our money, our children, and certainly about our marriages, and more specifically tonight, just about our spouse. Now, to understand why expectations can be such a problem, I need to explain how I'm using that term, and especially how an expectation can be different from a desire. So I want to distinguish that. Now, full disclosure, and some of you are already recognizing this, perhaps. This is something I've shared along the way. I've taught this before. I've shared it in many one-on-one sort of discussions, taught it in a counseling training class, some form of it, perhaps even here on a Wednesday evening several years ago. So bear with me if this is just review, but frankly... I'll be frank with you, even though that's not my name. I'm sorry, a little ridiculous humor <laughs> Frankly, I need to hear this. I need to think I need to think through it again. I need to think through it frequently. so let's talk about first of all desires for a moment, allowed desires and how they relate to how I'm using the term expectations tonight. and I have some slides to guide this part of the discussion, but before we look at those, and I'll hopefully click through them properly here with this uh, instrument, I want you to go ahead and turn to James 4 verses 1 to 3. James 4 verses 1 to 3. Having trouble finding it, it's right after James 3. See, i got enough new people here, I can can say that every once in a while. Some of you are saying, you've said that before. James 4, 1 to 3. It's on the screen as well. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You've got to understand there's a lot of strong terms in this passage. These are strong terms, words like conflicts and pleasures. You lust, Greek term epithumeo. It's a combination of the word uh, that means tithemi, that means uh, to want something or desire. Um, got a prefix on the front of it, epi, an epi desire, strong desire. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder, meaning some people do you are envious, another strong term, craving something, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and what it is that you're wanting in life, you you don't pray about it, but even if you do, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. God is basically basically saying, I, I read your heart. I hear the words you're saying when you say things like, Lord, just please help my wife god sort of interprets that differently you know please fix my wife so she's makes me happy bible there says that this is the source of quarrels and conflicts these desires but there but there are desires that are not sinful. I mean this is talking about something sinful, but I mean it 's only a partial list, nothing wrong with having desires for things like a happy marriage. If somebody comes in my office and says, well pastor i just I just really pray and desire that we'd have a happy message i'm not going to say, you know, get thee behind me, Satan, that is sinful, you know to think something like that it's not getting a promotion at work, you know better hours, better pays to have some Nice clothes, new clothes, to have your children do well in school, be obedient, to buy a, a new car or just have a car that works or desire for your spouse to respond certain ways and to respond well. Those are not sin in and of themselves. Nothing inherently wrong with those things. And the list could go on, obviously. but But there's a problem. Something happens in our hearts, okay? I mean the heart of man, not the pump. These desires morph. They, they change into something that's controlling us, and that gets back to that Greek term, epithemeo, the noun epithemia, a controlling desire. It's a ruling desire. That's a lust. A lust. So what's happened is, and this is the danger we can have some desires in our hearts for good things, and they, they can change into this other category that becomes sinful. Now, there are some sinful, there are some desires that are sinful, just automatically because the Bible says that's a sinful thing to think that way or to desire that. But there's plenty of desires that are not. So I don't want to rule out the idea that we have desires for our marriage, we have desires for our children, for life. But when it goes wrong in our hearts, it becomes this other entity. So here's a basic definition of a lust, just a colloquial working definition. A lust is anything that you're not happy or you're not content. If you don't get it, you don't get what you want. And or there's another side of that. You know, you're willing to disobey God in order to get what you want. I mean that 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 really is not just a desire. You're not happy. I mean, really, you go back to James 4, you know, I could could sort of reinterpret that differently. You know, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You lust and you do not have. I could read that differently. You want your way and you're not getting it. Something in life is not turning out the way you want it to. And so you fight and you quarrel. Just so you'll know, even though when we hear the word lust, we tend to think of only one category of sin. It's a much broader term than that in Scripture. If you go back to James 1, you see that all sin is related to lust. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. He Himself does not tempt anyone. He tests people. He tries them. And the the Greek term there is the same for temptation, a trial. But it depends on the motivation behind it. God doesn't tempt people to, to do evil. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, this this evil sort of passion, this ruling desire, and desires plural, that dwell in our flesh. As Paul says in Romans 7, there's this principle of indwelling sin that's there in the flesh. And then when the lust has conceived, picturesque language there, it gives birth. To sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death and destruction, and whatever. So it's a broad term, epithumia, lust. So we have to understand there's a difference there in our hearts. So the question is how do you know what's in your heart is an allowed desire? It's okay to desire that. And how do you know if it's a lust? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the answer it's how you respond when you don't get what you want. It's how you respond when you don't get your way. That, in a nutshell, is the distinguishing issue. Now, just to flesh that out a little bit more on one side there, let's just talk about a desire, what happens when you don't get your desire, if that's what it is, an allowed desire. And and we don't have desires. Okay, and we we don't we have many of desires. That's okay. We don't always get them. Sometimes we do. They don't always work out. Well, if it is a desire, we're still content. You see, why? Because we trust the Lord. We know that what He does is wise and good and just always, whether we understand all the particulars or not. So even though I. I, I I did pray for this issue, or I do desire this about my spouse or my children or my job or whatever. It's not happening. Still content. You know, the Bible does say in Philippians 4 that we're to be content in all things. All situations. Paul said that. Remember that pendulum sort of approach he 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 articulated in Philippians. 4, where he says, you know, I've had life working out the way I want it to and just the way I expected and desired, and then sometimes life doesn't work out the way I want it to. I've had good times, bad times, easy times, hard times. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. We trust the Lord, but sometimes we do get our desires. What we pray for works out. What we desire, what happens then? Well, we understand where it comes from. We acknowledge God is the source of that, the source of the blessing. We're grateful. We're thankful for that car or the house or the job or the new baby, whatever it might be, and, you know, money. There's something else that goes with that, though, that we know that if it was ever the Lord's will, that that end, we're okay with that. We're willing to give it up if that's the Lord's will. Well, there's another side to that, but before we go to it, let me just put it in mathematical terms. Remember the greater greater than sign in math? It's a formula. The reality of it is the desire for God is greater than your desire for that thing, whatever it was you're wanting. But on the other side, if it's a lust in your heart and you don't get what you want, you're not content, grumbling, complaining, And you're willing to disobey God in order to force something to happen, to get your way, to get what you want. And God, by His grace, in the world we live in, people get their lust fulfilled sometimes too. That thing, we serve it instead of God. It rules us. It controls us. So in reality, mathematically, the desire for the thing was greater than the desire for God. So you could apply that to the responses on either side of that little list we put up there earlier about happy marriage or material possessions or whatever it is in life that you want to happen to work out a certain way. Now, how does expectations fit in? Well, I want to talk about that for a little bit. We don't always speak in terms of I'm struggling with lust. You know, I'm I'm a lustful person. I'm lusting right now and I'm not getting my way. No, we use other words. You know, I should have this certain thing work out in my life. I, it only makes sense that that I would have this or that, or I don't. It only makes sense to me that that it would work out this way, and we might even use the word expect. I, I just expect that my wife will do such and such. I expect that my husband. I expect that my kids. I, I expect this or that. Those are. Substituted phrases and words for the idea of lust when there's baggage attached attached to the expectation. You see, just substitutes. If we focus on these expectations, we're we're setting ourselves up for major disappointment. And I and I want to allow for normal human disappointment. Okay, don't get me wrong here. We're, We're not robots. We have feelings and emotions, and something doesn't work out, and we're disappointed. You know, the Panthers don't win. We're we're disappointed. Disappointed a lot, you know, in life. But first year I moved here, the first fall we moved here, 2006, the Wake Forest football team went to the Orange Bowl. I was so excited. I moved here where there was a powerhouse football team. And then it never happened again, you know. Disappointed but when we focus on expectations and there's baggage attached to the expectations, we're setting ourselves up for something beyond just normal. So we'll talk about that. Let's think of the idea of an expectation. We might call it a desire, but it's passed over into this other category called a lust. And I submit to you that there's a use of the word expectation that is another substitute for lust, you see. We have these expectations. Again, it's just a word, I'm not saying if you have a conversation with your wife on the phone and you know she says, I what time are you going to be home? And you say, I expect to be home at five. You know, she doesn't have to confront you about your sin for using that word expect. It's just a word. But sometimes there's the baggage attached. We might try to convince ourselves it's just a desire, but how do we respond when it doesn't happen, you see? Let's talk about that. Here's what we do: there's kind of a dynamic that happens. We compare. This expectation we have in some some category, expectation about our marriage, expectation about our wife, our husband, we compare it to something else called reality, okay? This is what I expected of my spouse. This is the way my spouse really is. This is what I expected about my career move. This is the way it really is. This is what I expected about the university when I went to pursue this, this certain degree and this is the way it really is. This is what I thought this Wednesday night session would be about, and here's what it <laughs> really is. Okay. So you can apply it to anything at all. So the problem is we get our eyes focused on this thing called our expectations, and we start comparing it to what we expected, reality, and there's a gap, big gap sometimes. And depending on the issue... If it's an important enough issue, like marriage, like career, like children, like church, then the result of that dynamic in our heart can yield these symptoms. These are not really the issues in people's lives. They're the symptoms. They're the red light on the dashboard of your heart that lets you know something else is going on. Depression, anger, bitterness, frustration, just so irritated. Conflict, struggles, discouragement. Again, allow for some normal human disappointment. This is beyond all that. That is the sad fruit of unmet expectations in life. The problem is really lust. We can call it something else, but this is the problem. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This issue. Again, I've heard others say this one time on a talk show. Even secular people understand this, that you're setting yourself up for major, major failure and disappointment and discouragement when you allow expectations to control you. That's why I'm talking about this so long tonight. This is such a big issue, especially in marriage. I'm just applying it to that specifically, but it applies to everything in your life. In the midst of a storm especially, be careful about expectations because that's the problem. We focus on them, and we compare reality to our expectations. And the wider the gap, the greater associated the symptoms, associated symptoms are. In a nutshell, what is God's solution? Well, this is just a cut to the cut to the chase answer. There's a lot we can say about all that's on that slide there about well, it's repentance, you know. But you have to recognize it, you have to acknowledge what's going on. I mean, if you don't recognize it, if you're trying to explain it away and, you know, blame shift and minimize and rationalize, those are the three approaches that sinful man has used from the beginning of time to deal with their failure against God's moral law and what it means to live a holy life and to live righteously and to be like Christ. We blame shift. Well, I wouldn't be this way if my spouse wouldn't, you know. We rationalize it. You know, a lot going on right now. I just didn't get a lot of sleep last night. We minimize it. I, it's just it's just. I, I just got a little, little loud with my spouse. That was all. No, we need to recognize what's really going on, and I, I would encourage you to think this way more than you would, more than you would expect. <laughs> About this issue of comparing expectations to reality. Just remember, nothing else. Remember my hands here like this. Expectations versus reality. But what what, what did you really expect? And what's really happening instead? but recognize the dynamic, be open to the possibility that some desire has crossed over into that other category called lust, and confess that. The word homologeo. say the same thing God says about it. Don't minimize it, confess it. And so the answer is twofold. I mean, as our thinking changes about it, our mind, minds are renewed by Scripture, we put off and we put on. We put off the wrong thinking and behavior, and we put on the right thinking and behavior in its place as a habit, and we become someone different than we were. You may have to do this many times. So, let me just talk about, for a moment, maybe the new thinking to put on. So, again, let's go back to that idea that there are these expectations, and yet there's something called reality, and it's different. So, when we focus on our expectations, we we can end up being frustrated and irritated and discouraged and bitter and angry. So I'm going to suggest it starts here, focusing on something else besides your expectations. Focus on this, what I really deserve. Okay. Stop for a moment and think about, okay, this is what I expected, but what do I really deserve in life? Well, think long-term as you answer that question. You know, I deserve God's judgment. (laughs) I deserve to go to hell. I deserve eternal condemnation. I deserve God's wrath poured out in me. When it comes to living life in this world, I, I deserve none of my desires ever being fulfilled. I don't deserve any of my plans ever working out. I don't deserve anything like that. So, in reality, if ever one of my desires has worked out, if your spouse has, has ever been the person that you expected and desired, you've gotten more than you deserved at the hand of a gracious God. If any of your plans have materialized. So that's a new focus, you see, a new way of thinking. Instead of then all that other fruit being produced in your heart, like discouragement, irritation, and frustration, and so forth, something else results in your heart, a different fruit. Gratitude. Just so grateful. That's the result when you began to live your life understanding what you really deserve in this world and in life. I'm just so grateful that anything good has happened. I'm so grateful for any blessing from the Lord's hand. Just so grateful to be married, (laughs) to have a spouse. Yeah, but you don't understand. My husband always leaves his wet towels on the floor of the bathroom. When the husband hears that, he says, well, not always. I remember in 1998, I remember that one time, I distinctly remember picking up those towels. See what she does, Pastor? She's exaggerating. This happens all the time. She's like this. That wife has to make it very practical and understand that she doesn't really even deserve to have a husband. She doesn't even deserve to have towels. She doesn't deserve to have a bathroom floor for them to be left on. There are people in some places in this world that would give anything to have bathroom floor, some towels. I believe in making things very, very specific and practical like that, you see. Let's apply it to marriage then. What happens then in the relationship? Well, sometimes when you're going through the storm, especially, husbands and wives can kind of form their battle camps. And they've got their battle tent there and their battle flags flying. And, and on one side, you maybe have the husband and his concern is just for his own way. is focused on his way, his feelings, his needs, his rights, his expectations, his plans. But perhaps she's on the other side. Same thing, concern for her own way. She wants her way. She's just caught up in her feelings, her needs, her rights. I have a right that my husband loves me the way Christ loves the church. No, you don't have a right to that. God has a right there. He demands something. You can't. Expectations, plans, etc. So there they are. Trying to navigate this storm together. Fighting and quarreling and bickering and... The problem is there's somebody else involved, the omniscient, omnipresent God. And 1 Peter five five says something very interesting. God, God says there, I give grace to the humble, but I'm opposed to the proud. At the end of the day, it's two proud people. See, this is an age-old problem. It goes back a long ways. Pride's involved when there are these lusts there and these evil desires are existing, or even just good desires that morphed into something lustful. There they are needing God's grace to navigate the storm, especially during the storm. I need God's grace all the time, but what about when the pressure's on and all that? I mean, you need God's grace more than ever, right? God says, well, I'm opposed to proud people, so have at it. Do the best you can, you know, work it out. Good luck. Here's the way it should look. So here's the marriage navigating the storm correctly. He has desires. See, before it said, the tent said his lust. Now it's relabeled. He's putting it back. He, he maybe recognizes some lust, and so he pushes it back in his heart into the other category where it belongs. Some of those things are okay. A desire, you pray for it. And so something else is ruling him, though, as he deals with these desires and has concerns for them. He's even more concerned for, for God's glory, for God's desires to work out in the world. And he's actually more concerned about his wife than him, himself. Her needs instead of his own needs. Wanting her desires to materialize in plans you know when a marriage is hitting on all eight cylinders here you know he's humble but on the other side there's a there's a wife there that she has desires as well desires for him about him but she's concerned for God's desires and God's glory above her own and she loves her husband more than self and she desires his good and his happiness and well-being and wants his desires to materialize because she's humble. What do they do with the desires? Well, I can use this little pointer here. They take those desires and they give them to the Lord in prayer. That's what you do with your desires. doesn't mean you can't take practical steps to try to make your plans work out, but do this first. <laughs> give the desires to the Lord. You pray, Lord, this is my desire. I, I, I could use that, promos- that promotion at work that they're going to announce this Monday. I mean, I, I could really use that. I've prayed for better hours and better pay. and So, Lord, I, I give this to you. I, I commit it to your hands. But he, but he and she, they pray like Christ played in the garden, right? But nevertheless, your will be done. God, if it's your wills for these desires to work out, then that's what I want. And you work them out in your timing, in your way, if at all, Lord. I trust you. God sees the humility there. and This is an arrow pointing back in case it doesn't look like it. What's coming back is grace. God gives grace to the humble. Sometimes it's the humility, the grace, excuse me, the grace that you need to realize that this is a desire you've had for a long time, years, something you've prayed about for years. You need grace to be able to trust the Lord that long in that, you see, and persevere. It may never materialize. You need grace even if your desires do materialize, you know, grace to be the right attitude about it and to be grateful and so forth. You don't have them meeting in the middle on the war, the battlefield to fight and quarrel. You find them not perfect, but you find them doing the C word, you know, communicating (laughs) that word. You find them trying to serve one another out of humility because they love God more than they love anything else. So, that's enough of that. You can turn that off if you want. But just to wrap that up, summarize it. The term expectations can end up just being a cultural substitute for the biblical term lust. It can be a synonym. And as I said at the beginning, there's a reason for bringing this all up in a discussion of marriage. Some said high expectations for marriage. Not just marriage, but life. High expectations for life and High expectations about ministry. High expectations for their wife, their husband. High expectations concerning their children with no allowances for living in a fallen world where there's going to be storms and pressures. And then life doesn't turn out to be what they expected, or their spouse doesn't turn out to be what they expected, which means they're left with that frustration and irritation and anger and bitterness and disappointment. And this is a dynamic that can happen anytime, anytime at all. In the best days, but a life storm just magnifies the possibility of this dynamic. You're on edge. It can happen even more easily, more easily frustrated and irritated The fact is, differing expectations can bring conflict, but no one wants to get rid of their expectations and throw them out. We want our rights. We we want our own agendas. So of all times, to practice controlling your expectations, it's when the pressure is on, when the winds are howling. Seek to be patient with one another. Seek to be understanding more than ever. Seek to be, and I'm going to say this, and I I hope it's not misinterpreted, but put the best spin on this you can, but seek to be content with reasonable levels of performance from other people, your spouse, children, boss. When the situation is out of the ordinary, it's a storm time. Be content with reasonable levels of performance. And you know what? Even constantly be getting prepared for storms to come. That's a major element, by the way, in dealing with hurricanes. That's the difference between hurricanes and, and earthquakes. You know, I've lived through hurricanes and the Gulf Coast and earthquakes in California. You don't get any warning about those. You know, you, you you prepare in general and then you sit and wait. They can happen any moment. And then you forget about it and then it happens. Start here in the Windows start to shake a little bit and the light chandelier over the dining room table starts to swing a little bit and you go, oh boy, here it comes. But the hurricane, man, you hear it all, you know, when it forms out in the Atlantic somewhere, you know, and they monitor it and you track it. And so you can get prepared, you can board up the windows on your pharmacy and things like that. That's a major element in dealing with hurricanes. Well, in marriage, it helps a lot too. Maybe I can say it this way. If you're going to have an expectation, then have this one. Expect storms to come. There's a good expectation. Expect storms to come. Then you won't be surprised, so surprised. You won't be so shocked when a whirlwind lands in your life. A, a cyclone kind of comes in with for no apparent reason, and it might be an injury you weren't expecting or an illness or an economic downturn in the market, just hypothetically. A broken water main, hypothetically or a home air conditioner going out, hypothetically, or a car problem. And then the resulting shrinking of your paycheck because of all those things. I mean, that's real life. So don't panic. Prepare for that. The hurricane's coming. In fact, every sermon, every time there's a reading of Scripture and there's prayer, every time in your own life and you're reading Scripture and studying and praying, every t- sermon you hear here, see it as an opportunity to prepare you, to equip you for whatever life brings your way. And then when the storm hits, yes, work hard at being patient with one another and work very hard at being gracious with your words and responses, and that leads quickly to number two. That was all number one. This one's a don't. Now, they're related. Number two, don't take struggles out on each other. Don't take the struggle and the storm and the pressure out on each other because that's what's commonly, commonly happens. I mean, we don't take it out on our boss. We've got to be nice to him. So we come home and we take it out on the people that we should be treating the best. So here's a little phrase. Here's a mantra. Make a magnet out of it and put it on your refrigerator. Attack the problem, not the person. Okay? There's a mantra. Attack the problem, not the person. You need to attack something, probably, in the midst of a storm, pressure going on. You've got to do something. So attack the problem, the thing not the person. You see, it's easy to turn your frustration with an issue in life, or it's easy to turn your concern with an issue in life into irritation with someone close to you, your spouse and your children, or the dog, you know, kick the dog. So here's a very practical thing to do, very practical, as you try to live out this mantra. I've got another mantra here in the middle in second too, but that was the first one. Here's a practical thing to do. Examine yourself, evaluate yourself, take note of the normal ways you respond that are wrong when the pressure is on. I mean, just be honest with yourself. How do you normally respond when it's wrong when the pressure is on? Is it sarcasm? Hypothetically. Is it judging motives of other people? Is it condescension? It's a good way to get control of the situation. Is it hurtful words? Is it exaggeration in the way you speak? Is it harsh tones and volume? Get louder. Is it the other extreme? Just clam up and get silent. You know, know yourself in this. So then, especially in the time of a storm, be especially aware of those habits and resolve with the Lord's help to avoid those things, especially now. I I would say that we, we need to avoid those things all the time. But I'm saying in the midst of a storm, even more so. Which leads to another mindset to keep in another refrigerator magnet. Act, don't react. Act don't react. Attack the problem, not the person. Act, don't react. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me show you some examples of both sides of that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. It says... Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I submit that verse 31 is a picture of reacting and verse 32 is a picture of acting. Let me explain. Look at verse 31, those terms, bitterness, wrath, anger. You don't manifest those. You don't Have those unless something else has happened already, you see. You don't wake up on a Thursday and say, man, I haven't been bitter in a while. I think I'll be bitter today. It's a good day to be bitter. No, you become those things because of something somebody else has done or said or life or pressure or money or something. But on the other hand, you can wake up on a Thursday and say, you know what? I'm going to be kind to someone today. I'm going to be tenderhearted today, somebody. You can choose to do that. You don't have to. I mean, the problem is we make those reacting words, right? We, we, we are those things if the other person has been kind to me, and then I'll react with kindness. No, there are to be acting terms. And getting this backwards, reacting instead of acting, is something to be on guard against all the time. But it is a particular challenge during a life storm when the pressure is on. To react to one another? And reacting in some sinful way like caustic speech or condescension or criticism or complaining and grumbling, really all that is, it's not attacking a problem at all, it's just ventilating. And it ends up solving nothing, solving nothing. And perhaps the biggest temptation comes when the other person is attacking you in some way don't react. Reacting just keeps escalating the pressure of the situation. The illustration I've used with people before, and I've done it here before, is the the illustration of a ping pong game. It's like ping pong. You serve it over, and they hit it back, and you hit it back, and they hit it back, but then you put some spin on it, and you take a step back, and you put some extra oomph on it. And then they have to take a step back, you know, and, and, and be able to hit it harder. And then you take another step back, and pretty soon they look like the Olympics, you know, slamming the, the ball back and forth. What does it take to stop that? Somebody to let the ball go. Then it all ends. It's like that in communication. We just keep reacting, and we keep escalating the pressure of the situation, you know. Solves nothing. So just remember, if you are reacting, you're actually being controlled by some, someone else. They have you in their control. You're allowing someone else or something else to dictate the course that you're on. Here's another interesting way to, to see it. I've used this illustration before with people. In those kind of situations where we're controlled by other people, we are a barge instead of a ship, a, a raft instead of a ship. What's the difference? A raft is at the mercy of the waves. It can't control the direction of anything. A ship at least, even though it feels the waves, even of the storm, at least it has a a rudder and and an engine or some oars or a sail. You don't want to be a raft at the mercy of circumstances and people. It makes the other person or the circumstances too big. It turns them into a God in your life somehow. So shrink them. Learn to live your life of responding biblically separate from those things. And one final practical key of all this one point, in your interaction with one another, the first response sets the tone. The first thing out of your mouth sets the tone. If you want to just pick one thing to work on, work on developing a first response that is somehow positive instead of negative. A negative one just keeps escalating the issue. Work on something positive. Make the response, and again, apply this in marriage. Your your spouse has just done something or said something Boom, there you are at the crossroads. What's going to come out of your mouth? That first response is so important. Make it one that conveys understanding of the other person's point. That's so important in communication. If we don't understand the point, then we're not communicating. So make the first response proof or evidence that you're hearing this and you understand the person's point. Perhaps that would mean even repeating to the person back what they're saying, what they're trying to say. In gracious words on your part, that conveys that you, you get the point. I hear that. Or perhaps it would mean com- commenting on the positive side of what they brought up. Maybe there's a lot of negative to what they said, but there might be something positive. You, you could see that that would be a good thing. If, you know, that this one aspect of that, I, I see that. You could even say that this good first response is the first step if you're following the sandwich principle. The sandwich principle, I've shared that with some of you before. The sandwich principle of communication is that idea of two slices of bread with some crispy fried chicken in the middle, okay? That's a sandwich. If you respond positively with that first statement, And then graciously add your concern, graciously add your disagreement or opposing opinion opinion or different desire. Then what you started with is is the bread of the positive statement, and then you set the ground and have the ability to graciously articulate maybe how you see it differently. But then you end with the other slice of bread. You go back to end with another positive statement of understanding a positive statement of encouragement or support for that person, love, even maybe a, a compliment to them about something. You should speak that way to everybody, your boss. This good first response guideline and the sandwich principle are helpful guidelines all the time, but especially during a storm. You see. So work on it all the time. And then it'll be more of a habit a default setting, when the pressure is on, you've built a habit of trying to respond graciously the first words out of your mouth to somebody. Well, those are the only two I have time to cover tonight. Perhaps the main point of what I've said in this session is simply this. Be ready for the storm. Be ready for times of pressure. Be on guard against sinful responses. Be strategic in how you approach these times and be gracious to everyone around you. Be ready, be on guard, be strategic, be gracious. I, hate to, I think I had like six outlines tonight, these various things I've said. Be ready for times of pressure. Be on guard against simple responses. Be strategic in how to approach these times. Be gracious to all around you. It's necessary all the time that we do this but especially during the storm when the pressure is on. So I trust something in there will be of encouragement to you. Like I said at the beginning, this is something I have to rehearse a lot and think through a lot. Let's pray.